Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. text we've been looking at the last several weeks as we consider new beginnings, uh, new school years, new marriages, new babies, uh, new transitions. Someone really kind of was talking to me last week and said, you know, every, every ending is the beginning of the next beginning. And, and that's true. Not all of our new beginnings are exciting. Some of them come because we've lost a loved one or something has happened in our life that that we're grieving or mourning, but it is still nonetheless a new beginning. And a text that's been a guiding light for us as we've considered this is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And we've been talking about how God sees every new beginning as an incredible opportunity for you to experience growth and transformation. And when we're aware that God sees it that way and that God desires for us to do that, when we come to a next chapter in life, we can open ourselves to what God is seeking to do in this moment and the next moment. And we've talked about how the first step in doing that is casting off that which hinders and which entangles you. The things of your last chapter that are going to get in the way of this chapter. And sometimes that means letting go of bad habits and bad relationships. Sometimes that means uh, filling your time with something new by taking something old out of your schedule. Sometimes it means dealing with some sin problems in our lives. And once we do the work of leaving behind that which is holding us back, the next thing that we've got to do is walk forward, as Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
And last week we talked about how important it is when we, like Peter, step out of the boat of our last chapter and into the waters of the next chapter that we don't lose sight of Jesus who's standing out there in the water that gives us the confidence and the ability to go the path that he's marked out for us. God's calling us into the next, and we so often stay in the past. God's calling us into new steps towards new adventures and walking on water, in Peter's case. But we know that we're only going to succeed in those next chapters if we do so with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And today what we're going to talk about is... is a little bit different in terms of not being as much on a schedule as a next step. But what it is, is it's looking at what is the greatest new beginning that you will ever experience in your life. What is the greatest new beginning that God has in store for you? Because when we look back on the greatest new beginning that God has in store for each and every one of us, I think it helps us to understand the ground that we're standing on today as we consider where he's calling us to in the future. And as we think about what it means to have that new beginning, I want to think about Jesus' ultimate new beginning, uh, the resurrection. We often talk about Jesus when we think about his sacrifice and his suffering, the, the difficult time that he went through. We talk about the Passion Week that Jesus experienced. And the Passion Week is the seven days immediately leading up to Jesus' arrest and his trials and his crucifixion. The Passion Week is where he's in the temple and he's teaching and he's preaching and he's talking about what's going to happen when he's gone. But Jesus doesn't, uh, it's not new information to him that this is going to happen. Jesus has known for some time that he is going to go to Jerusalem to be arrested, handed over to the Jewish authorities, handed over to the Roman authorities, and that he's going to be crucified. And if you could imagine the weight of that, if you can imagine knowing that you're walking towards Jerusalem so that this year at the Passover you can be betrayed by your own friends, arrested by your own people's leaders, put on trial for, for crimes you didn't commit, handed over to Romans to be persecuted, to be, to be whipped, to be flogged, to be put in, on, on parade, going before Herod and Pilate, and, and all of the, the stuff that comes with this, ultimately leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus has borne the burden of knowing where he's going for a long time. We don't know exactly how long. We don't know when he became aware that this was the end goal of his ministry and of his relationship with his apostles and everything else, that it was all moving towards Jerusalem, that it was all moving towards the cross. But he does know because in multiple of the Gospels, Jesus tells the apostles on several occasions, and it's always connected to some conversation about greatness where they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus says, you don't understand anything. I'm going to Jerusalem to be arrested, betrayed, and die. He knows. And yet even with that knowledge, he keeps taking step after step, getting one day and one mile closer to his death in Jerusalem, and he carries that with him. And when you're reading the Gospels, we, just, we, know, we know the ending we know that there's the good ending at the end where Jesus, after his crucifixion, three days later, gets out of the tomb, that he has a resurrected life. But we can't let that stop us from realizing how intense this weight is on Jesus as he's walking towards Jerusalem and walking towards the cross. 
And he's carried it for a long time. Not only has he carried the knowledge of it, he actually goes through with all of it. In the moment on the Mount of Olives where Jesus, the night before, the night he's going to be arrested, is praying, and it says, you know, sweats dripping like blood out of it. He's just, the intensity of this is unbelievable. God, if there's any other way for this to happen, let this cup pass from me. If there's another way, I want the other way. But your will, not mine, be done. Judas betrays Jesus. He is arrested. He's on court before the Sanhedrin at midnight, then in front of Pilate, then Herod, who asks him to perform miracles like he's some kind of a circus performer. And then sent back to Pilate, wearing a crown of thorns and a robe, mocking him. Pilate then welcomes him back from Herod. The two of them had been enemies, but they bonded now over the persecution of this Jewish rabbi. Pilate has him flogged. Pilate has him led out to the crowds. The crowds want a criminal instead of Jesus, and Jesus dies on a cross between two criminals. And he dies. And three days later, three days later, when the stone is rolled away, and Jesus in his resurrected body steps forward out of the tomb, can you imagine how good it feels? To have all of that behind you. Knowing that you're headed towards death is behind you. Knowing that people are going to betray you is behind you. Knowing that, that the kingdom that you've been teaching about and promising for so many years is now arrived and you are the king of the kingdom. And to, to feel that weight lifted. Can you imagine how good Jesus felt in the garden that morning outside the tomb just going, good to be alive and walking from death and not towards it. That's Jesus on the resurrection day. And I need you to hold that image of Jesus on the resurrection day as we begin looking at what that means for us on our baptismal day. In Romans chapter 6, Paul's writing to the church in Rome and he says to them, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Listen to this. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. I think we actually have a hard time listening to Paul and reading Paul in these passages. Um, Paul wrote these texts. Paul wrote these texts to be heard, not to be read. Uh, we're a visual, literate society, and so we write something so that we can send it to someone so that they can read it. And if they're going to give it to other people, they're going to give it to them, and it's going to be read also. Paul is writing to be heard. This letter was meant to be sent to Rome and, and to be read aloud. Uh, and it, would, it has this constant back and forth, back and forth. And in fact, all the texts that we're going to be looking at today have this back and forth. And for our ear, which is not really trained to listen as well as we're trained to read, uh, we run into some challenges here. When he starts jumping back and forth, old life, new life, old life, new life, old life, new life, it tends to fall into a cadence that for us feels like a lullaby. And so there's a chance that as I was reading that text here a few minutes ago, you kind of just started to fall into the rhythm of Paul's writing. And it just washed over you and you didn't hear anything I just said. It's one of the challenges we have with Paul. But Paul is trying to communicate this very important reality that when we are baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death and buried with him. What happens in the waters of baptism here at Northwest Church of Christ when someone goes under the water? You die Jesus' death in your body. And while you're under the water, you are buried with Jesus in the tomb and under that water. And when you come out of that water, what do you receive? You receive the resurrection that Jesus received on the third day. Hallelujah! To receive the resurrection. And so you when we step out of the waters of baptism, we should be as overwhelmed by the change in our life as Jesus was as he stepped out of the tomb and into the garden and went, nothing will ever be the same again. Nothing will ever be the same again. And Paul's trying so hard to tell us what that might look like in our lives because the resurrection that Jesus had in the tomb is the resurrection we have in the water. And Paul says, listen, there's so many similarities. Your old life and your new life are completely transformed. They're as different as Jesus' life before the resurrection and, your life, and Jesus' life after. Yours changes that much too. What are you talking about, Paul? The relief, the overcoming fear of death, the new forever life, the arrival in the kingdom. And Paul starts trying to describe that. He says, listen, Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin. The death we die, we die to sin. We now live our new life to God. He says, listen, your first human birth is your beginning. Your baptism is your second greatest new beginning. You, when you're born, you learn who you are and whose you are. You know who your family is and who your parents are. When you're baptized, you learn all of that again, and it transforms you in that most incredible way yet again. It's your second birthday. 
We celebrate our physical birthdays every year. Eddie's having his today, I've been told. Uh, he's, you know, doing great for an old guy. Um, doing pretty good. And he's not in here, so um, he'll only know that if he listens to the recording. I should be safe. Um, but, you know, we celebrate our physical birthdays, but we fail to appreciate the significance of our second birthday, the day that we join Jesus in his death and his resurrection and his eternal life. Our second birthday changes everything, or at least it should. See, I think a lot of times our mentality is to tell someone after their baptism, you know, things are going to start changing for you now. There's going to be some things in your life that start to be different. But when I read what Paul is writing here in Romans 6, and here in a minute when we go to Romans 8, and a little bit we're going to look at Ephesians, when I start looking at these passages, while we say there's some things in your life that are going to change, I think Paul wants us to understand is once you get baptized, there's nothing in your life that's not going to change. You are going to be transformed. You're going to become a new creature, a new creation. Things aren't going to be like they used to. You aren't going to be like you used to. And he can't seem to find enough ways to describe all of these transformations that happen. But it doesn't keep him from trying. Romans 8, starting at the beginning of that chapter, Paul writes, don't let the cadence of this rob you of what Paul is doing. Paul has constant reminders about your old life versus your new life. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. You're in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... They do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh according, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings and that we may also share in His glory. Do you see how different life is because of your second birthday? Do you see how... Paul says, listen, have you been baptized? Yeah. Don't you realize how much God is changing you? Sometimes we stop and we think, do I? Am I changing? Am I different? Paul says, listen, you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be different. If you're supposed to be being transformed, this is the biggest new beginning in your life where you cast off all that hinders and entangles and the sin that's holding you back and instead you fix your eyes on Jesus and you go wherever He calls you, the path that's marked out for you. And it says that that He leads you in these directions where He's calling you to do, not as slaves. And sometimes we get this idea that the Bible's a rule book and Jesus is the rule master And then he ties our hands up and he just leads us where we've got to go. And if people say, well, why are you going that way? We say, well, Jesus is dragging me this way. That's why I woke up so early this morning and came to church. And it's not like that. He says, listen, he's not not pulling you into this new future as slaves. Jesus is guiding you into this new future as sons and daughters. It's a father that in the darkness says, listen, We've got to get through this dangerous part of your life. We've got to get through this tough time. And I'm going to lead the way, and I've got the light, and you just follow me. And in that moment, you don't look at your dad and say, oh, yeah, what makes you think you know the way? I'm just going to sit here in the dark and go my own way. You don't do that. You look at your dad, and you say, you've got the light? Yep, you know the way? Yep, let's go. And you follow. That's the kind of invitation that God is making here in Romans chapter 8. He talks about how the flesh desires fleshly things, but the spirit desires spirit things. The flesh leads to death, but the spirit leads to life and peace. The flesh is hostile to God and cannot please Him. The Spirit of God lives in you. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. This is serious stuff for Paul. And Paul wants it to be serious for us. And and it's not just here. I want to read Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. And I'm not going to have a whole lot of time to talk about it, but the text can speak for itself because Paul's writing and he's telling you how different your life is if you're in Christ. If you've had a second birthday, here's how different your life is. Ephesians 4 and verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
You want to stay in futile thinking and in the darkness? Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught about him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. It was being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid, because these are things of your old self. If you've still got these, you're still waiting to be transformed by your second birthday. Get rid of, get rid of the things of your old life. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. If you're not sure if you're doing well, if you're someone that does a lot on social media, just go back through your last month of posts and ask yourselves, Am I demonstrating bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice, or am I being kind and compassionate to people, forgiving just as Christ God forgave you? In your marriage and with your kids, ask yourself, which of these lists sound more like one night this week? Because Paul believes that in your real life, in your real relationships, and even in your digital life, and whatever kind of relationships those are, that your whole self is going to be completely transformed to look nothing like you used to because Jesus made you something you are now. So follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person's an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. I I don't have time to go over all the list. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, all those things you used to be, you're not anymore. 
All those things you are now are rooted in what Christ gave you by the power of the cross and His resurrection. When you were baptized into those things, you came out, and suddenly the Spirit starts working by the power of Jesus and the work of the Spirit to make you into something that doesn't look like you used to look. And Paul has this real belief that this should be observable and measurable, that people around you should go, man, something is weird about you. What happens? And you should be able to say, I've got a new birthday. And they'll go, what? And you'll say, I got baptized. And Jesus started changing me from that to this, from then to now, from darkness to light, from flesh to spirit. I used to fill in the blank, but now I fill in the blank. And church, let me ask you today, you should really be able to fill in those blanks in your life if you're a baptized Christian. Paul is sure of that. You should be able right now to say, boy, I used to fill in the blank, but now I fill in the blank. Do you know what your answer is? And here's why Paul cares so much about this, is that there's a math problem that results from you not knowing the answer as to what goes in those blanks in your life. And here's how the math problem works. This is middle school algebra, maybe, I don't know, some of our younger kids may be able to do this. Um, if you have a math equation that is 2 plus x equals 2, and you have to solve for x, what does x equal? One. Almost. Zero. zero. What does x equal? Zero. zero. Now let's say instead of x, you insert into this math equation 2 plus the power of Christ equals 2. What does the power of Christ equal? Zero. That's math. Now, what if in your life, you take your old life and add the power of Christ through your baptism and the sum total of your old life plus the power of Jesus Christ is your old life? What if you haven't changed? Paul can't handle this. And the reason that Paul can't handle this is because your testimony and your life and your inability to know what your old life used to be and your new life is means that you believe or you're telling other people that the power of Christ in your life is the sum total of nothing. That's a math problem. Paul has a different idea. Paul believes that your old life plus the power of Christ equals your new life in the Spirit. And that people should be able to look at you and go, man, your new life in the spirit doesn't look anything like your old life in the flesh. What happened? And you say, I added the power of Christ. And everything got changed. Why does it get changed? Because the power of Christ in our lives is worth more than anything else can count for. So what's the greatest new beginning in your life? And we've had a lot of people this year that have been getting baptized and starting this new beginning. And let me tell you something. I'm not telling you today that your life's going to start changing a little bit. I'm telling you that nothing will be the same again once Jesus and the Spirit get a hold of you and God starts transforming you into the person that He's calling you to be in the Spirit. Your life in the flesh is over by the power of Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, boy, this is discouraging to me because I'm not sure how much I've changed. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Because if you're thinking, boy, I feel like I should be changing and growing and transforming more than I have been. Why am I not doing that? It might be because the question is, is wrong. 
The question isn't, why am I not doing that? The question is, why am I not letting Jesus do that in me? Why am I keeping the Spirit out and keeping the Spirit from producing the fruits of the Spirit in me? It's not by your power that you're being transformed or changed. It's by the power of Jesus Christ. It's not by your work that you're being transformed into the character of God and into the image of God. It's by the work of the Spirit. And so church, here in a minute, we're going to be singing a song that reminds us that it is not by our power that we do this, but that it is in Christ alone who took on flesh, started as this helpless babe, and gives us the gift of love and righteousness. It's a gift. It's not something you earn. We sing that he was scorned by the ones he came to save, that every sin on him was laid, but here in the death of Christ I live. Because of Christ's death on a cross and his power, he takes us from death and he brings us to life. If you're swimming in death, get out of that water. Fill yourself with the living water of Jesus Christ, the life of the Spirit, by the power of Jesus. If you need to come forward this morning, do so while we stand and sing. In Christ alone my